Hi, everyone. So before we begin, I would like to introduce to you my good friend Jerry Wan from the Dear Asian American podcast, as he has something very important to announce. So I hope that you get a chance to listen to what he has to say and also hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you very much. Hi there. This is Jerry Wan from the Asian Podcast Network, and I'd like to share a message with you about the 2020 census. The census is our American way of counting everyone living in the United States to determine how resources are allocated and how decisions are made. Decisions like funding for schools, roads, public services, and healthcare. Businesses also use this data to determine whether to open up new stores in our neighborhoods. This week, along with other Asian organizations across the country, member shows of the Asian Podcast Network, like Bomb Me Chronicles, are proud to participate in the 2020 Census Asian Week of Action. If you haven't, Take a moment to go to 2020census.gov to fill out yours for your household. This is our last chance for the next 10 years, and the deadline is fast approaching. It takes just minutes and can make a decade of impact, so we encourage you also to check in with your friends and family to make sure they do the same. Let's make sure the voices of our amazing community are heard loud and clear by participating in the 2020 census. Let's get counted and shape our future here and now. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. For this season, I'm exploring the theme, Where Do We Stand? In response to the API issues concerning COVID-19, anti-Blackness racism, and this year's upcoming presidential election. For this episode, I sat down with poet and author Kathy Park Hong. Kathy recently released her critically acclaimed essay book, Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, this past spring. She is also the author of her poetry collection book, Engine Empire, Dance Dance Revolution, and Translating Moem, and is currently a professor at Rutgers Newark University and is a poetry editor for the New Republic. In this episode, Kathy talks about the anti-Asian racism in her op-ed piece, the slur that I never expected to hear in 2020 for the New York Times. We discuss a few of her essays in her latest book, Minor Feelings which digs deep into the complexities of the Asian-American identity, the model minority myth, the ongoing anti-Blackness issues in the API community, and the life and death of Korean-American avant-garde artist Teresa Hak-young Cha. I greatly appreciated this memorable conversation that I had with Kathy in this episode, and I hope you do too. Thank you. And... Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt, and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on their Facebook page or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle. everyone. This is Randy. So I am here today with author Kathy Park Hong. She's a journalist, poet. She also wrote Dance Dance Revolution back in 2006. She is the poetry editor of the New Republic and is a professor at Rutgers New York University. Kathy also recently released her latest book, Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning. So Kathy, welcome to the show. And I want to say uh, after reading Minor Feelings, I was completely blown away um, by just the level of depth in each of your essays. So 
I want to say congratulations on releasing this book. I know it just came out during spring, unfortunately, during the time of the pandemic, but has that affected uh, your ability to promote the book? Were you working on a book tour at that time, or have you been able to um, process uh, the release of Minor Feelings? Um, well, yes, uh, COVID-19 definitely uh, curtailed any book tour a book tour that I was planning. In fact, I was um, teaching at Rutgers and I, which is in Newark, New Jersey. And I brought my, my, my carry on bag because I was going to catch a Newark flight and a uh, uh, New York airport. And then I was going to fly to LA and um, uh, do a reading there and then do a reading in San Francisco and then one in Seattle and so forth. And um, two hours before my flight, I decided to cancel it. So I just went home with my, my carry-on bag. And I was, I was very sad because I wanted to see friends. And um, already, even back then, there were people who were very enthusiastic about the book. And um, so I, I was very disappointed. But I think it was more like everyone else. I was just uh, in shock and just really concerned about what was gonna happen with COVID or, you know, that day, the first time that, um, <coughs> when the my flight was canceled, school, you know, I also got the announcement that closed, uh, the school was closing down. So there was a lot happening um, at the time and now it feels like two years ago. <laughs> There's been so many different stages of, COVID, like there was the, there was the Tiger King <laughs> early stages of COVID. <laughs> there was like baking banana bread and Fiona Apple COVID, and, you know, and then of course, um, now we have, we've been having these massive protests and um, it's, um, it's been both uh, electrifying and um, enraging and frightening all at once but anyway so I, I didn't know what was going to happen with the book but um it just had a life of its own um I was afraid actually before the book came out um in the fall I had a lot of uh anxiety that uh, no one was going to read the book because you know I'm a poet I'm used to people not reading my books and um I also thought that uh, with a subtitle like an Asian American reckoning that uh, people weren't gonna care, um, that it wasn't gonna reach the readers that I wanted it to reach because, uh, you know, I thought that media, uh, you know, they were not, they weren't interested in um, the subject of Asian America because it was very marginal. So the, um, that, was, that was my fear and much to my surprise, even though, <laughs> there was no book tour. Um, the book just kind of um, found a life. I mean, it just, it was very, it's so far, it's been word of mouth. And um, there have been a lot of readers that have gotten a ton of letters, uh, um, social media messages over the last few months uh, from readers saying that they, uh, the general message seems to be that they feel seen. Um, they feel that they're 
ideas uh, that they're recognized. And um, it's been absolutely gratifying um, to hear that from readers, to say that readers saying that they feel seen makes me feel seen. So um, that's been really exciting. And I've definitely been doing, um, you know, podcasts or book events here and there over Zoom. And um, that's also been great. Um, but you know, Zoom, I'd rather be talking to people in person, uh, but at least there's some access. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up something that I was kind of surprised about as you were in the process of releasing Minor Feelings, that you mentioned that you would have a lot of anxiety releasing this book, whether people would really care to uh, pick up the book. But I'm, I'm very curious, were you also thinking about what the Asian American community was thinking about? Uh, did you have doubts about whether they would understand uh, this book? Sure, I was, um, I had a lot of doubts. I mean, uh, my first doubt was, will Asian Americans even read the book? Um, um, that was my first doubt. And then I was also nervous about the fact that I, the subtitle was uh, Asian American and I was afraid that readers were going to say that it wasn't, it didn't mirror their lifestyle, their life, their experiences, their lifestyle, their family history. Um, I, I was afraid that um, people were going to think that I was, you know, trying to be a spokesperson, mm. um, which is not my uh, intention at all. You know, the book was, um, I mean, really, in the book, I say, I, you know, I intend to speak nearby the Asian American condition. You know, it's my just specific um, uh, perspective uh, on uh, my opinions on what it, uh, what what the Asian American condition is now. Um, and what I was hoping was that I would open up the the book will open up uh, the discussion and crack open or crack the open it wider so that other um, Asian Americans um, who are not, you know, say Asian Americans who are trans <clears throat> or um, South Asian, Southeast Asian, you know, who don't, are not really exactly part of my demographic uh, would tell their stories. Uh, that was more my intention more than anything was to kind of, you know, open it up. Uh, open up discussion even further, but I was afraid of that. I was afraid people would be like, "This is not who I am." Um, you're, you're like stepping over boundaries. I was afraid of what people were going to say about um, my interracial. You know, I made some um, arguments about um, uh, interracial bigotry and um, and all of that. But I also kind of wanted to be provocative you know I was like really I want to provoke and I know that you know I, I've also gotten pushback you know I've gotten a lot of pushback as well as people who really admired the book um, um, and they've been all over the place you know and that's that's what I expected and that's what I wanted I don't want I didn't want to play it safe I didn't want to write a book where I wanted everyone to agree with me. That's not that's not how you start a conversation. That's not how you start an argument or anything. I mean, even in the I in the book, the first person in minor feelings, like that's not 
yes, it's autobiographical, but that's not like it, that I just encompass who I am. You know, sometimes like I'm an asshole in the book, right? And, but then I also kind of exaggerated that persona because I wanted to be like, look, I'm not, it's really boring to hear about a person who plays always the victim or who's always virtue signaling, saying all the right things. It's not, it's also not very realistic. I think a lot of us have these uncharitable thoughts. So I think that was also another, um, I mean, I was concerned about it that like I was also putting myself out there by kind of being an asshole um, because I wanted to show that um, we're not, we're flawed. And, you know, I think in the book, I was saying that, you know, people expect, and not just white people, but other people of color expect the characters or the, um, the authors to always be good, you know? And I just didn't want to play by that um, prototype. You yeah, know? thank you. And also before we delve deeper into the book, uh, recently mm -hmm. you wrote uh, a New York Times piece uh, during the beginning of the pandemic called The Story I Never Expected to Hear. Uh, in that piece, you talked about the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes during the beginning of the pandemic. So before the CDC recommended face coverings, Asian folks started using face masks, but as they did so, they were the target of anti-Asian behavior and as a scapegoat for COVID-19. As we are seeing more people wearing masks in places that make them mandatory, we are seeing an alarming number of people, specifically among white people, that have been protesting against wearing masks. So I'm interested in hearing about your take on the attacks that Asian folks have been receiving for wearing their masks. And now several months later, we are seeing this lead into a movement of people that are fighting against wearing them. I feel like there's an interesting connection there, right? Yeah, I, don't, I don't really, I mean, I just think Americans, Americans who are refusing to wear masks now at this stage are just complete idiots. And, <laughs> you know, you don't know what to say about them. I mean, I think, my, I, I, Early on, um, when COVID-19 was happening, it was um, the only people who were wearing masks were Asian immigrants. I, I would say even Asian Americans, you know, assimilated Asian Americans weren't really wearing masks. It was Asian immigrants, like the immigrants you would see in Chinatown or Flushing and so forth. And, and so they were you know, and that and um, the anti-Asian stigma was going on even before COVID really, really hit the U.S. It was in um, Italy, it was in also other, you know, there was also anti-Chinese sentiment in parts of Asia as well. And it was, you know, at the time when I wrote that article, it seemed really quite virulent. You know, every Asian person, Asian person I talked to said that they had an encounter, uh, you know, um, they had an um, anti-Asian encounter. So um, I don't know, I haven't really um, been following um, the hate crime statistics uh, the last couple of weeks, a uh, few weeks. It seems that the media attention to it at least has died down. I don't know if actually, there are more hate crime, um, if there are more or less hate crime incidents against Asian Americans. That, however, is irrelevant. I think what it showed, uh, what uh, the anti-Asian racism showed was that it's always there. It was always there, you know, like this, you know, um, it uh, debunked this myth that Asian Americans are almost white. 
that um, they are um, um, that they are assimilated, that they are Americans, that they're model minorities, and so forth. I think uh, when um, you scratch the surface, there's still all of the buried. Uh, uh, xenophobia, the yellow peril, all of that, like, still exists, you know, and it's not, it hasn't gone away, even though we haven't been hearing about the hate crimes recently. Um, it's still there. I think it was a wake up call for a lot of Asian Americans, however, Asian Americans, like, I, I would say about like, maybe five years ago, even a few years ago, um, you know, even a few years ago, I, you know, I would have a conversation with an Asian friend who'd say, well, I don't really, I mean, it was really prevalent during Obama's era, but like, you know, I don't really think about race that much or, yeah, I don't, you know, there, it just didn't like, it wasn't really something that some Asians were really facing up to. And I think it was a wake up call for a lot of Asian Americans to reckon with where they are in the racial hierarchy. Yeah, so. I also think it's also important to point out that like South Asians had to deal with 9-11 and so dealing with the stigmas, but I think sure. for other Asians, it we don't think about getting race, uh, racist attacks every day, like, you know, someone who's Black or Latinx or who's Muslim. And I think the COVID-19 uh, did unfortunately start to trigger, send triggers about our own childhood, which I definitely want to sh sh talk about like in page 78 of your book. Um, but I know what the wave of anti-Asian hate crimes that have been escalating since COVID-19. Yes. And, and I mentioned that in the, New York, in the New York Times article that South Asians have faced this hate. Yes. Now, uh, 9-11, I was talking to a friend who's Taiwanese and she was saying, it's like, she's like, I guess I feel like I know what it feels like to be a black woman. And I'm like, I don't know that analogy is right. I think, no, it's not like being a black woman. It's, I think it's more, if there is, you know, it's always dangerous to drop analogies between races. Um, I think, you know, we have learned to be very careful about that, but if anything, it's more about, uh, it kind of echoes 9-11 and what was happening to, um, um, South Asians and, um, you know, Muslims, <clears throat> South Asians who people were mistaking as Muslim, um, Middle East, um, Eastern Muslims as well, anyone who was uh, visibly Muslim or mistaken for Muslim. Um, and, and we've seen, it's like, I think whenever there's any kind of disaster, whether it's national or geopolitical, it's like musical chairs, you know, it's like there's always going to be a group that's marginalized with black Americans. It's constant. Right. Um, but with like immigrants, it's like, you know, whether, um, you know, in terms of the stigmatization, it's like, okay, it's Muslims one year and then it's, and then it's East Asians. I guess we haven't been stigmatized for <laughs> a, a while. I guess since like the early 80s when um, Japanese uh, Americans were uh, stigmatized. Um, but it's it's not, it's this uh, model minority myth is very fragile, you know, because of that. Yeah. But anyway, I interrupted you. You should get Oh, no, it's okay. Yeah. So uh -huh. then how do we as a community confront our own barriers, such as the model minority myth and our circles to speak out? Because there are many refugees and immigrants, such as my family, for example, who came to the U.S. to escape state-sanctioned violence. 
and often we're conditioned into silence as their way of survival. And I think of the word silence too, and I think about you know my family who came out of Cambodia and Vietnam who had to deal with horrible genocide and and seeing law enforcement and militarism dominate the country in such toxic, deadly ways. And and when they see events like what's happening. I've had other friends who are also Vietnamese or in my age group that have been told that their parents are stay quiet, don't get into trouble. And it mm -hmm. feels like this whole condition of we gotta stay silent to survive, but then we see that silence also harm us. So I wonder how do we confront those barriers and how do we confront the model minority myth that harbors a lot of the silence that we're forced into? Mm. Um, I think it's happening right now. You know, uh, I do have a lot of sympathy for um, for immigrants who came um, over uh, because they had to. They had no other place to go. Um, they had, you know, their their homelands were completely devastated, like the Vietnamese, Cambodians, uh, Korean Americans to a certain extent. I mean, a huge, huge portion of 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 the asian population like i was actually uh when george floyd died i was really curious about i really wanted someone to write about the Hmong community in in minneapolis you know because there was the Hmong cop you know who was an accessory to george floyd's murder but then um some years before that uh there was a uh among citizen who was shot also by another cop. Uh, uh, the cop what, um, um, who killed uh, George Floyd, he was married to a Hmong woman. And I was like, I didn't realize there was such a big Hmong community in in Minneapolis. And, and I was like, you know, as I was thinking about um, all of the tweets, all of, you know, um, Asian Americans who are also kind of um, um, excoriating, giving um, and um, uh, protesting against this cop, uh, this Asian cop, as I was too. I was also thinking that um, we, like my Asian experience is so different from his experience or or, or that, you know, or probably that Hmong wife or that, um, you know, or, mm. or that, that person uh, or the Hmong citizen who was, who was, who was shot, you know, because they were refugees as well. Whereas I, you know, my family came willingly, you know, and we don't know anything about them. And they're, they come, you know, it's a, um, the Hmong community. I know at least in California, a lot of them are, um, really working, you know, come a much more working class and say like Hindu Indians or, uh, you know, or Chinese, um, Chinese Americans and, um, and so forth. So we have these like huge economic disparities and so forth. And I, I would say like, you know, I would probably have more in common um, I don't, with a, someone with another ethnicity who are, who's of my, you know, educated 
uh, with my education class and say someone who's Hmong who lives in um, Fresno and um, came here as a refugee. But I guess you could say that one of the similarities that we do have that is not discussed enough actually is the fact that a lot of us are sort of these, a uh, lot of our families, we have uh, uh, a lot of trauma from um, these wars um, that have, been engineered by American imperialism. And I don't, I don't think that is discussed enough, you know, that is talked about enough and that needs to be. And that's what I tried to kind of emphasize in my book. You know, this is not, our history doesn't start when we immigrate here. Our history starts, our history with the America doesn't start when we immigrate here. Our history with America began way before that, you know, when we were, um, you know, um, with our parents who lived in Vietnam or, Cambodia or South Korea or or even now China right like you know the kind of with the way global with global capitalism and how we are completely exploiting these Chinese workers uh, like when we're looking at our iPhones like we have no like we don't think about it we don't think about like the hundred you know like just uh, the amount of exploitation that is happening to get these gadgets in our hands you know it's you know, but what's out of sight, out of mind, right? Anyway, no. I think I feared left. No, I, I think this is, a, no, this is a great discussion too, because you do bring up a point about how the Hmong community, you know, like, I think oftentimes when we think of Asian American, East Asia, dom the East Asian Americans dominate the narrative, right? And not mm -hmm. so much it gets talked about Southeast Asians, Pacific mm -hmm. Islanders who, uh, there's folks that don't identify as Asian Americans, they identify as Pacific Islanders. Uh, yeah. There are, um, and say, I can't speak for the Hmong community, but I do think that when like Southeast Asians or other non-East non Asian folks um, have experiences of trauma or if there's something that happens to us, it, we become Asian American all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. like, it just feels like we're, we're never part of the narrative until something actually happens to us, whether it's something that our community has done or if there's mm -hmm. been an attack on our community by white supremacy. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that's, I would say that's typical of anyone in, who's in any kind of marginalized position who's not part of the kind of dominant narrative that is America. I think like we're only, we only become visible when there's been like uh, just when we've been hurt in some way or when we hurt in some way. Otherwise, it's just there's uh, um, very little, um, there's there's nothing. And that's why I found, it, I have to say, I found it rather frustrating, um, you know, when COVID-19 was happening and there was, uh, you know, discrimination, discrimination against uh, East Asians and, um, you know, there were, NPR was calling up, oh, we'd like to talk to you. And I was like, I'm like, oh, this is very, it's typical. It's very typical that of course they want to talk to an Asian person because Asians are being hurt in some way. And I, and I was like, yes, yes, we're victims of hate crimes, but you're going to forget about us. You know, you're going to go on to the next thing, mm -hmm. um, the next news cycle. And even, you know, we have to, this is why we have to really change the infrastructure of media because I could see even media kind of they're trying to like move the narrative away from Black Lives Matter right now, or you know, because it's just they have to. They just keep they keep um, um, turning it along. Uh, I 
what I've been saying, what I've been saying is that like, you know, with the uh, anti-Asian, um, when pe people have been talking about how scared they were back in March and April, and I was like, you need to, we need to take this fear and turn it into rage. We need to like realize this has to be a wake up call. We need to be angry, you know, instead of being afraid and not going out of your apartment. And we need to um, just realize wh what is this racism about? Where is this coming from? And also um, kind of ally ourselves with um, Black, American, Black Americans and Brown. Um, black and brown Americans, and that is happening. That's happening right now. And I, I find it really, and I don't know, I wish someone could like tell me statistically if, if there are more of these, more Asians are doing this. I mean, it seems like with the Asian Americans that I know that I'm friends with, that are in my immediate circle that I follow on social media and so forth, they are galvanized in a way that I don't think I've seen, I've read about since um, the late 60s and the 70s. So I, you know, so that makes me excited and I really hope it continues to be that way, so. Yeah, and I know that um, before you brought this up, I was actually gonna bring up the 1992 LA riots and the narrative that pits uh, Korean communities against black communities. And also what people do forget, and I think you mentioned how the media tends to uh, move along with the narrative and just uh, abandon it. Like, for example, Soon Ja Du, a Korean female store owner, shot and killed 15 year old Latasha Harlins in her store. And uh, Soon Ja Du received a very light sentence. And this came months before the Rodney King verdict. So it seems like we see a lot of these familiar parallels today in the wake of this current civic, civic unrest. And, and it also kind of it puts the Asian American community to be confronted with harm, perpetrating of harm that's been done towards Black Americans and the struggle of building solidarity with yeah. Black Americans, right? Yeah, I, I think it's, there are definitely parallels between what's happening now and the LA riots. I think a lot has changed. I think people's consciousness has changed quite a bit. I think, uh, uh, I mean, Amer uh, white Americans are think differently. Um, progressive white Americans, uh, I would say. Uh, Asian Americans think differently. I would say the protest tactics are also quite different. Um, it was, um, you know, the LA riots was a really kind of change the time and. Um, it's a, it was also very, it's very complicated, you know, in one sense, I want to vilify the, uh, the Korean American merchants who were anti-Black, very clearly anti-Black, and um, were not engaging with the Black community. I also think that there were also communication problems, um, uh, you know, between Koreans and Black Americans. I also think that the narrative was just a conflict between Koreans and Black people without them dealing with, uh, no one really was looking at the uh, longer, the long history of how, um, 
you know, African Americans were basically um, segregated, um, uh, um, not prevented from living in certain neighborhoods, were very pretty much like penned to, um, you know, South Central, um, and redlining because of redlining and how there was no ma manufacturing jobs and and also about the long history of police brutality and so forth. It's like, and. Asians, Asians were there. They were both perpetrators, but they were also pawns. And but I think now it's like, and now it's different. Like you know, as you could see, like I was seeing, it was really kind of amazing when I saw footage of the protests happening in LA. And um, you know, the protests. I mean, I think there were some. There were definitely immigrant and small businesses that were vandalized and so forth. But the protesters were not sticking around in South Central. They were not sticking around. They were not going to K-Town or wherever. They were like heading, they were all, they were in Rodeo Drive. They were like in um, Third Street Promenade, Santa Monica. They were like going, they were, and they were peaceful and mostly they were peaceful protesters. And what, but they were like also, if there was looting and vandalism, it was Louis Vuitton. It was, it was, it was, you know. An Apple store, you know? It was an Apple store. It was Steve McQueen. It was like, but it was also just people just rallying and going like when the LA riots was happening, they didn't make it. None of the writers, writers made it past. I mean, they couldn't get to Beverly Hills. They couldn't get to like, they were just like the, the, the cops are all lined up. They were few. They're like the white, white people were unscathed and there were no white people. It was all Latinos, all Asians and black people just South Central, K-Town and so forth. Now we're seeing just the mobilization just is so much grander and, um, and, and which makes me more hopeful. I think uh, it, very sad what happened with LA riots, but perhaps it was necessary for what's happening now. Who knows what's gonna happen now? I don't know, but I, I do feel a little bit more hopeful than I, yeah. you know. I also wanted to add in that another part of the modern minority myth besides science is shame and guilt. And when we see like the harm, like Officer Tao, for example, being the accessory to George Floyd's murder, like in the past, I would see a lot of Asian Americans feel bad or shame. It's like, gosh, I, I don't want to be associated with this. I feel shame that he's also Asian. But what I have seen is that there's more API folks starting to coalesce, like, okay, let's transform whatever guilt and shame we have to be productive, to think of how do we build solidarity? How do we have difficult conversations with our family members? Because I think as I talked to a few people in, um, for this upcoming season, uh, one person uh, told me that, or actually her, uh, her name's Andy Tan, she said it's so easy to uh, be on social media, to be talking in front of reporters about racism, but we can't, uh, easily have these conversations with our own family members. There is something that's holding us back. And I don't know if that was an experience that you've shared. Yes, or... I mean, this is what I've, that's been in the conversation is like, you need to talk to your parents. You need to, um, which I've been doing. I mean, uh, with my mother and father, they, they're not exactly the typical conservative Korean immigrants. Um, they're more like, independent thinkers, you know, like uh, as an example, my mother, when I was talking to her about the protest, she was like, 
I was like, mom, I mean, I'm not afraid to have these conversations. I'm not afraid to yell at my parents. I'm always yelling at my parents. They're like, okay, okay, fine. All right, all right, all right. I'll vote for him. Whoever, fine. Um, but like I was talking to my mom and I was like, what do you, what do you think about these protests, mom? And she's like, no, I, he's, they're like, what happened to George Floyd was horrible. I can't believe they did that. That's awful. You know, they should protest. You know, the protest is necessary. This is what my dad said too. And then she's like, but she's like, but I'm afraid. I, you know, I'm afraid of the rioting. They shouldn't be rioting. I mean, that's not going to work good. And, um, you know, and she's like, and I'm worried, you know, my mom owns a cleaners in Cape Town. And she's like, I'm worried about, you know, we we're wondering if we should board up the Cape, the, the cleaners or not or, and everything. And I was like, mom, I think they're not really going for Cape Town businesses so much as they're going to Beverly Hills. And I also told her, I was like, yeah, you know, they looted Louis Vuitton. Did you know that? And she was like, what? Louis Vuitton? <laughs> And I said, yes, Louis Vuitton. And she said, well, I have to go down there and get me a bag. You know? <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that your mom has that humor. And, and yeah, no, it's a good way, is, to, <laughs> good way to smash tape. No, I also feel weird about the way we talk about our Asian parents as this monolith, you know, that they're yeah. all negative, stoic, you know, must always, you know, not no, no, first of all, I know very few Asians who are uh, parents who are Trump supporters, but like who are very anti-Black. Well, I'm like, not everyone's like that. You know, you also have to treat Asian parents as a heterogeneous group. And I would say like my parents are, are I'm not saying they're not, they can be quite anti-Black, but they're also surprisingly very racially quite progressive. You know, people, Parents are complicated people, but I yeah. think that conversation is absolutely necessary to have with your family members. I'm, I mean, I was talking about this a few times with um, Mir Jacob, who is, um, uh, you know, who wrote this amazing book, uh, graphic novel, uh, memoir, uh, Good Talk. Uh, and she was saying, we were like, we need to, it never happened, but we were like, we need to have this forum where where we need to talk about anti-blackness in the Asian community. <coughs> and, and we're like, it's not really the parents. Like, I'm more interested in kind of, and maybe you could talk to me about this. Like, I'm more interested in talking to the Asian American bros, you know, like the bros who are in finance or who are actually like the Asian Americans who are actually in positions of power. Or, you know, that is not me, that's for sure. <laughs> who are actually very like white adjacent, like the yeah. ones in Silicon Valley or Wall Street, or, you know, like, I don't the really The know. Yang gang. Yeah, the Yang uh, gang. The Yang gang. Although, again, Yang is also someone whose politics is rather complicated, you know, but there are, there are, you know, I mean, there are the really toxic conservative Asian Americans like Bobby Jindal or, um, uh, what's her name? Elaine Chow, married to Mitch McConnell. But I also know that there are a lot of like Korean American Wall Street dudes, you know. And I'm like, these are also people that we need to reach out to. And like, I'm like, we need to also reach out to younger Asian Americans so, so they don't head towards that like sort of neoliberal route, you know. So mm -hmm. that's that's also. I mean, that's a little bit veering away from. Um, but it is also interrelated. It's like you need to kind of you know, you, they, we've been so taught to just, a certain kind of Asian American has been so taught to only 
look out for ourselves, for our own immediate family, and not for the larger American community. And um, that needs to change. That really, and it has been changing. And I think this is also not specific to Asian Americans, but to just the process of immigration and being settled and feeling no longer having <clears throat> um, the kind of clamped down survivor ethos, you know, where you are able to actually, when you're survive, when you're trying to survive, you're not really thinking, you know, you're just trying to like get by, you're just taking it day to day to day, you know, but um, when you are of a certain class, or if you're assimilated in a certain way, then you are, you can think like, I would say the second and third generation, so forth, they have that ability, they have that luxury that perhaps uh, certain immigrant parents don't. Yeah, so I do want to read page 78 uh, uh, in the chapter of the end of white innocence. And uh, I'll take a quick read here. So you mentioned, you write, most white Americans can only understand racial trauma as a spectacle right after Trump's election. The media reported on the uptick in hate crimes, tending to focus on the obvious heretical displays of hate. The white high school students parading down the hall hallways wearing Confederate flag capes and graffiti swastikas. What's harder to report is not the incident itself, but the stress of its anticipation. The white reign of terror can be invisible and cumulative, chipping away at one's worth until there's nothing left but self-loathing. The poet Bandu Kapil wrote the following, if I have to think about what it looks like when the far right rises, all I have to do is close my eyes and remember my childhood. Friends have echoed the same sentiment. Trump's presidency has triggered a flashback to childhood. Children are cruel. They will parrot whatever racist shit their parents tell them in private in the bluntest way imaginable. Racist is quote unquote out in the open among kids in the way racism is now quote unquote out in the open under Trump's administration. But this trigger does not necessarily mean recalling a specific racist incident, but a flashback to a feeling, a drum of fear and shame, a tight animal alertness. Childhood is a state of mind, whether it's a nostalgic return to innocence or a sudden flashback to unease and dread. If the innocence of childhood is, is being protected and comforted, the precarity of childhood is when one feels the least protected and comfortable. And reading that, you know, I remembered the anticipation of Trump's election, well, the election of 2016, where Trump would eventually be elected. And I think that several months leading to it, I felt this immense anxiety whenever my mom would put on ABC7 News or, uh, hearing what my social media has opened up uh, with friends who I thought were people that I could trust that would also be supportive of Trump. And, mm -hmm. and I remember going back to my own childhood, thinking about the time when I was caught a jab in the school bus or the time when uh, a coworker basically chastised me for driving an Asian car saying that, you know, we don't like rice burner cars. I mean, it's, it is those kinds of feelings that make me remember what it was like to feel this intense anxiety, this, I, 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 I gotta stay quiet because I don't know what to say, what's gonna happen next, the anticipation mm -hmm. of, am I going to get attacked? Am I going to get hit? Am I going to get arrested if I punch someone? So mm -hmm. those are the kind of feelings that bring me back to Trump's election is, you know, reliving the worst parts of my childhood and realizing here I am 
in my mid-30s, seeing that this could happen all over again, things that I didn't think about or things I didn't have to experience the last few several years. So I wanted to get your take when you wrote that particular uh, page. Um, uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, yeah, no, no, I mean, I'm with you there. You know, I was, that was my childhood was quite a perilous experience for me. It was not, uh, it was not like, a, you know, um, romping around and playing soccer and drinking lemonade and, you know, sleepover, going to sleepover and, uh, overnight camps or anything like that. It was, uh, it was just a time where I just was um, always alert. I mean, it's all—it's a very—it's a very—it's a real kind of somatic feeling that I was trying to get at, you know, because it's like you could say, like, yeah, when I was a kid, someone called me a chink, or someone, yeah, or someone called me a jap, and people, you know, people were like, oh, that's awful, that's terrible, and I'm like, it's not just the slur itself; it's it's being called out so often or being called out so often, being physically or verbally harassed so often, not seeing yourself anywhere represented uh, and being excluded just so often and so constantly every day that it just becomes internalized where uh, the kind of the alertness and fear is instinctual. You know, it's almost like this, like I felt like when I was a kid, it was like I was always, this fight or flight you know it's just i always have this kind of fight or flight instinct i never felt i was always really self-conscious you know so um you know when i was a kid there was a song um free to be you and me that a lot of kids listen to you know it's like some hippy dippy song um and and i was like that's not i didn't move me at all i was you know i was like that's I don't feel free to be you or me, you know, I don't know who I am. And, um, but it, it's a, it's a, like, it's, it's a physiological feeling. It's something that's just really, you know, that's, that's deep, you know, and it never, uh, and unless you, and it's not just also with kind of your public life, it's uh, being out of the house for a lot of, Asian Americans, they've also had hard family lives as well, which I don't think gets talked about enough. You know, I think mental health is something that really needs to be um, explored more in Asian American uh, communities. Um, you know, like when I broached the subject of like seeing a therapist with my mom and she's like, oh my God, right? something wrong? Nothing is wrong, is it? You don't need to go see a therapist. And I'm like, mom, it's like, I mean, I'm in New York. I'm like going to see a therapist is like going to yoga. You always tell me to go to yoga. Well, I'm like going to see a therapist, but uh, it's definitely something that needs to be processed. And I think the reason why I wrote that was, I don't think I would have been able to write that essay if I weren't, if I didn't become a mother, you know, like I was, um, you know, I started that book or conceived that book right before I had my daughter, but being a mother is actually really quite triggering. Like, you know, just every, it just all, you just have these like little flashbacks, you know, from when I'm giving my daughter a bath, when she was an infant to brushing her hair, to, you know, seeing her catch frogs. I'm always thinking, 
it's flashing back to both of my own experiences and also like what I didn't have that she now has. So it was able to like, I was able to kind of put it into perspective, like uh, think about childhood in a different way. I think before that, I just kind of repress it. I was like, childhood sucks, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I wanna make sure that I'm respecting your time here, but there was one part of the book that I really wanna bring up is uh, your connection in the poetry scene. And you talk about how poetry is often very white dominated, especially in audience spaces. Uh, this is something that I can relate to in the storytelling scene because I've done storytelling and a good friend of mine who's been my mentor has not only done storytelling but produces her own shows as an Asian American woman. And we talk about tokenism, we talk about single narratives of BIPOCs, especially in these scenes where we are kind of used as an accessory of, or a token um, to perform our cross up checklist. But um, how do we find ways to navigate in these spaces? Or actually better yet, how do we dismantle these spaces? And you use Richard Pryor as an example, a person that, a comedian that you, you know, uh, were very inspired from, but what actually did you find intriguing about him? What, how did he impact your approach as a poet and how you uh, worked or told in front of these audiences that are very white dominated? Uh, I think poetry is uh, changing a lot now. I think it was really white dominated when I was uh, in my in my 20s and even in my early 30s. Um, it was just kind of awful, <laughs> you know, and, and it was just very, it's, I, you know, I don't think it changed. I think poetry, because it's such a tiny group, it's so small and the rewards are so few, uh, you know, you make no money. And I don't think that's gonna change. I'm sorry, it's not gonna right. change. Poets will never make money, no matter how much you try to change it. It's just not gonna happen. But, um, and therefore that makes poets very petty. And I think even if you're, it doesn't matter if you're white, BIPOC, you know, you just, it's just, it's just petty, poets are petty. Um, and I'm, I'm probably gonna get attacked for that, but it's <laughs> the truth. Um, but I would say that like, you know, it was very white centric when I was in my twenties and uh, early thirties and it was very exclusionary, very, very exclusionary. And, um, and also very uh, safe and risk averse. And I was so really unhappy with a lot of the, um, BIPOC poetry that was coming out at the time because it was so, it, they just followed these rules, you know, um, and to get that award, to get that fellowship and, and, and so forth. And I just, I just felt like I was really like straightjacketed in, in poetry. And I was like, I, and I was really disappointed too, because I thought, you know, you could say this about any art form. I was thinking like, I decided to be a poet because I thought poetry was like this, renegade genre where I could, you know, experiment with language and it's in a way I thought, you know, it's anti-capitalist, but it's still very, very elitist. And um, when I was watching, I've, I, I've seen clips of Richard Pryor previously when I, but it was, I think it was just watching his whole, uh, that whole um, film live in concert while I was in a vulnerable point in my life it was just the timing of it that really kind of really struck me. And I just, I wanted to be fearless. I've always like, 
you know, to my credit, I'm, I think I, I'm always not, I'm always, I, I've always been interested in being provocative in one way or another. So there was a tendency in me to be interested in someone like Richard Pryor, you know? Uh, it's not like I was writing safe little poems and then I was like, oh my God, you know? I, you know, or it's like, I didn't know anything about race and suddenly I saw Richard Pryor and I'm like, oh my God, everything has changed. I'm now woke. It wasn't like that, you know? But I was just at a very vulnerable point in my life and it was like, he was a reminder. That's what Pryor was. He was a reminder. He reminded me that art, that like, performance, writing, you know, language, communication can be really <clears throat> radical and hilarious and honest and brutal. And, you know, he just sort of, and I was like, I want, and terrifying. And I was like, I want my writing to be like that. So it took a long time, you know, to figure out what form I was gonna use. And um, I may, probably made a lot of missteps. Um, I think this is what I want to say. This is totally going off topic, but, you know, I would say right now there are a lot of, it's a very fraught time, politically fraught time for poets to be writing about race or class or gender or anything. Um, and I think that we have to allow each other. And I know there's a lot of fear about saying the wrong thing or writing the wrong thing. Um, or misrepresenting someone else's life that isn't yours. But I think that it's really important to allow, forgive each other and allow ourselves to fail, you know, to make mistakes you know, that if we uh, misrepresent someone or, you know, write something that's not as ethically sound as it could be, you know, you. This is, I mean, this is all part of poetry writing and art making is to take risks and fail. And um, there's a lot of anger right now, but I think, you know, I think people should weaponize that anger, but at the same time, for there to be truly great art and for there to be truly great poetry, you can't just utilize anger. You know, you can't, that's just, that's just Twitter. You know, I mean, that's just Twitter. That's just an op-ed. Like you also, and nor is it, can you just write like, a sad poem or sad story. You you have to be adventurous and using all the wide mm. range of emotions. And you also have to be adventurous in terms of being willing to think outside of your own life too. But then people, readers in your community have to allow each other to make mistakes. Um, I was just, I don't know, I've just been thinking about that. Because when I was like thinking, when I was like, inspired by Richard Pryor and working on my book, I made a lot of mistakes, you know, and I was like, I wrote poems that I'd be ashamed to show anybody right now. I think a couple of them got published and, but it was like, it was a process, you know, it was a process. And I was like, I needed to really, you know, I wrote a novel about the LA riots. So I started to, and it's like, this isn't working. This is awful. Um, but these failures are necessary to really write something that is that feels true to you mm. um, and that feels new to you as well. Mm. Thank you so much mm. for sharing this. And also, before I wrap up, I do want to thank you for acknowledging uh, the work of Teresa Hopkins. Cha. I know we don't have time to go over her uh, life. Maybe and you can ask one more question. And it's oh, always... sure. Okay. Well, uh, thank you so much. So, there was a particular chapter about Teresa Hopkins, who I 
never knew about. Uh, she was an avant-garde Korean American artist who was raped and murdered uh, back in 1982, I believe, at the age of 29. And you know, just researching her work, like right after reading that chapter, it was particularly painful because we think of how her work has been under the radar uh, because I never knew anything about her. It was not something that uh, people were talking about during the time of her death up until I think years later that you know certain Asian American uh, programs started to pick up, slowly pick up on her work. And I'm glad that you were able to bring her work to life. But I also think that talking, the stigma of talking about her rape and murder was also a fine line. You know, it's like, do you, how do we talk about her death, but not to the point where it overshadows her work, her legacy, what her true legacy should be about. So I was curious to know what was the process of discovering and learning about the life of uh, Teresa Hakim Cha. And I recommend to everyone to get the book Dictate. I know it's a, it's an interesting, it's an orthodox book. It's it's not tied to particular genres. I think what's so beautiful about it is it, it has an unapologetic approach to language, about an unapologetic approach to history and um, arrival points and what have you. But I was curious about your own uh, experiences uh, writing about her, uh, writing that particular chapter about her life. Um, it was probably the hardest essay to write in the book. I mean, they were all quite challenging, but that was just, I just, I mean, I would start it and then I would take a break from it for a month or two months. I mean, I started writing it, in fact, even before I really talked to her brother or um, really investigated and looked into what happened because I was afraid to. Um, I found it to be very depressing and grim. Um, and I was like, I don't know how to turn this into an essay that's not just depressing and grim. Like here's a horrible death. And like, how do I like trans uh, write this essay? So it's also just an homage to her and her artwork and that it's also an essay that you want to read. and. Um, so it took a long time. I think what really helped was I was under the pressure that none of her family members wanted to talk. And um, what really fueled me to continue was interviewing um, her brother, who uh, is still, you know, he's in San Francisco. And um, he actually wrote a memoir about it. It's in Korean. And it was, I read the memoir, which was you know, really crucial for that essay. And it was mostly about uh, the court case and um, um, him going to all the hearings and, and so forth. But um, she's, in a, she's a remark, she's incredible. And she's like, she, uh, Teresa Hakim Cha was um, um, on the forefront of art making and writing and performance, but because she was raped and murdered uh, in the early eighties, right when she had her first book published in her early 30s like she was like a few days a few days huh? after like a few days before yeah. her death no mm -hmm. less like she just disappeared and now like 
people do read her, but I don't think enough people read her. Um, I think there should be more people read her. And that's been actually really amazing uh, with having minor feelings published is like a lot of people who will pick up decay as they're picking up um, minor feelings and that makes me feel good. Um, and it's not, a, it's definitely not an easy book. You know, I think in this age when we ex want really easily consumable memoirs. Um, it's, it's, it's a book that demands um, an active kind of reading. And, um, but it's just also just really cool to look at and so forth. And I related to her a lot of ways. And for her, for me, the book, you know, the essay is called Portrait of an Artist. And I really wanted it to be a portrait of an artist, a portrait of Teresa Hakyong Cha. And, um, you know, and Minor Feelings itself is also kind of a portrait of an artist as well. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that and sharing her legacy in your book. I do recommend people picking up Minor Feelings. And also, do you have anything that you're working on at the moment now that uh, 2020 is kind of a wash year? Yeah, I am. I'm, I've, <laughs> I finally am at a space where I have some quiet and I could get some thinking done and reading. I've been mostly reading and thinking. I'm, I have another book uh, that I'm thinking of writing. And, um, you know, it's interesting. There's like a few people who are like, why don't, how, you know, who were like, why didn't, I wish she wrote about her mother more or something. And I'm like, that's kind of gonna be my next book. But I also want to, which is also a very cliched subject, right? An Asian American subject. But I also want to return to my experimental, you know, poetic roots. Like the book of essays or is probably like the clearest, most direct book I've ever written. And I want to write, I think I want to write a book of prose. It might be, it'll probably be nonfiction, it'll be fiction, but I just want to, you know, treat a traditional subject in a really weird way. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on today. And really it's been such a great conversation that we are having. And I'm really thanking you from the bottom of my heart for doing this interview, but also for uh, really sharing your journey uh, with us and also um, giving us a better insight about how complex and layered and intersectional the Asian American experience is, and to also once again prove that the Asian American experience is not some monolithic experience, that there's so many different areas and pathways and, and what have you. So really thank you for doing this and much success to this current book and, and to your current projects that you're working on. So thank you so much for your time, Kathy. Thank you, thank you. It was really nice talking to you and- Thank um, you. Yeah. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening and be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on the Bunmi Chronicles on Facebook, or you can follow me on Instagram at Bunmi underscore Chronicles. Thank you again, and looking forward to sharing more with you. Mm -hmm.